Tuesday, November 5th, I begin my tour where other travelers have ended theirs, on the confines of the wilderness and at the last village of white inhabitants, between the Mississippi River and the Pacific Ocean. And welcome, my friends, to Ozark's History and Stories. I'm your host, Vincent Anderson, and what you have just experienced is the first line of a detailed journal on a great expedition into the heart of the Ozarks 202 years ago, starting November 5th, 1818, and they traveled into the heart of the Ozarks. Now, this adventurer is a, and a traveler who decided to take his journey and then realized that maybe he's not as prepared as he should have been, but he had the opportunity and he took the adventure anyway. So today we'll begin to discover the stories and the history of the Schoolcraft expedition into the Ozarks as we take our flight back into Ozarks history and stories. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to Ozarks History and Stories. We are so glad that you dropped by for a visit. I'm your host, Vincent Anderson, and I've been looking forward to sharing this Ozark story and adventure with you. Now, before we begin our adventure, I would like to make mention of our Patreon page. For those who support Ozarks History and Stories, we have a special list of materials referencing our show today. On our Patreon page of books, maps, articles, magazines, and locations you can search on the internet concerning Henry Rose Schoolcraft, you can also receive and download an 1854 map of the Ozarks. Now this Ozark Plateau map uh, you can use for your own studies. It is a TIFF file, so it's a very, it's a very stable file. It's 22.6 megs, meaning it's one of the highest resolution maps of the Ozark Plateau on the internet. It is our way of saying thank you to those who support Ozark's history and stories. I've grown up in the Ozarks and have studied the Ozarks region for most of my life. And it is on this podcast I would like to show in vivid color of the written and spoken word the stories and history of the Ozarks. I believe it would be appropriate to begin with our first person here of Henry Rowe Schoolcraft. Now, Henry Rowe Schoolcraft was born March 28, 1793 in Albany County, New York, and he passed away December 10, 1864 in Washington, D.C., and he was the son of Lawrence Schoolcraft, and Lawrence's wife was Margaret Ann Barbara Rowe, R-O-W-E. So as we turn back and look at Henry Rowe Schoolcraft, we can see that his middle name is his mother's maiden name. Now this is a common name and naming scheme uh, that was used during that time. Henry Rowe Schoolcraft. So also this happens with other families. In my family, 
Uh, I have a fourth great grandfather. His name was Thomas Shirley Anderson. And the first time I saw his name of Thomas Shirley Anderson, I'm thinking, what in the world is he doing with a girl's name? What is What did his dad William think when he was naming him? But Thomas Shirley Anderson, uh, Shirley is his mother's maiden name. Her name was Catherine Shirley. So Thomas Shirley Anderson, middle name, mother's maiden name. Go back to Henry Rowe Schoolcraft. Henry Rowe Schoolcraft, his mother, her name, maiden name was Rowe. So represented in a gentleman's name here, we have the representation of two families, which is, I think it's pretty it's a pretty neat thing to have. Um, Henry pursued the family tradition of glass making, but after several years, his interest in science really kicked in, namely in geology. It really intensified, and Schoolcraft received a standard education, but at age 13, uh, Schoolcraft began working in the glass factory where he learned the trade from his father. Now, the glass factory functioned all the way up to 1817, and in 1817, they went bankrupt, and so the factory closed down. Uh, there is an interesting paper written out on the internet that we have also on our Patreon page. A link to it. It's called Trade Disruptions in and Early America's Early Industrialization. It's written by Joseph Davis and Douglas A. Irwin. Uh, they both co-wrote this uh, paper, very good paper, uh, for the National Bureau of Economic Research. And what they looked and discovered and uh, really went into detail of is between 1807 and 1815, the U.S. foreign trade was severely disrupted by Jefferson's trade embargo uh, because of the British blockade of the War of 1812. Well, after the War of 1812, we finally settled peace. And after 1815, uh, the American markets start to receive a flood of imports in from, of all places, Great Britain. And some of the products that were coming in, guess what? It was glass, lead crystal, lead crystal glass, which competed against uh, the Schoolcrafts and their factory. Uh, so by 1817, uh, Schoolcraft, uh, they had to basically close out their, <laughs> their business and it because it was unsuccessful in competing against imports. Now, although Schoolcraft did not attend college, he did privately study mineralogy and geology with Professor Frederick Hall of Middlebury College. And uh, Hall praised Schoolcraft's uh, scientific aptitude in declaring, and this is what he said, I know of no other person on this side of the Atlantic who stands a fairer chance than yourself to become a first-rate operative chemist. Now, again, despite his promise of being a chemist, which actually Schoolcraft was going to be working with chemicals to make glass like silica and heat and everything like that, Schoolcraft proved to be unsuccessful as the owner and superintendent of a glass works factory in New Hampshire. So, so they did declare uh, bankruptcy by 1817. What is a young man to do after declaring bankruptcy? Well, head west, young man. And where is West during this time period of 1817? Well, it's out west on the other side of the Mississippi River. So he headed to St. Louis. Um, also in St. Louis, Henry Rowe Schoolcraft was out there by July of 1818. And he happened to visit a, a wonderful little museum there built by 
William Clark. Have you ever heard of Lewis and Clark? Well, Schoolcraft actually visited there in July of 1818 where he saw Native American garments and weapons, and this, this is the quote, arranged with great taste and effect, but also a variety of skins of remarkable animals, minerals, fossil bones, and other rare and interesting specimens. So uh, that's an interesting little tidbit. But while there in St. Louis, Schoolcraft convinced a fellow New Yorker, his name was Levi Pettibone, to accompany him on a three-month, get ready how long this is going to be, a three-month, 900-mile journey through the thinly populated White River Valley region of Missouri and Arkansas in the Ozarks. And when are they going? In the winter of 1818 and 1819. Yes, they take off in November. <laughs> they take off in it's, uh, November the 5th, and they end up uh, in the first part of February. They finally climb out of the Ozarks 900 miles later. Now, a little later um, in the summer, so they, they bent in, the, in July, and so in the late summer of 1818, Schoolcraft and Pettibone arrived in Potosi, and now that is in the heart of Missouri's territorial mining region, and for the mining was for lead. And Schoolcraft surveyed the uh, area's mining and smelting operations before he decided to investigate the rumors of rich lead deposits in the White River Valley. And so this is really taking shape. So Schoolcraft and Pettibone were poorly prepared when they embarked on their journey. They were inexperienced as outdoorsmen. Uh, they lacked proper clothing, lacked proper equipment for a winter expedition. And during the first week of their trip, and you'll, as we will come to find out, their pack horses, they wandered off twice. And later they were trying to ford a, a river and the pack horse plunged into the water, ruining most of their supplies. Um, Schoolcraft and Pettibone also found themselves lost without food or dry gunpowder. Uh, later, a month later, uh, around December 5th, uh, Schoolcraft and Pettibone, uh, were, they were in Ozark County, Missouri on Lick Creek. There is a swamp, a little swampy area at the confluence of Lick Creek and another little creek coming in together called Possum Walk. Not Opossum, it's Possum, P-O-S-S-U-M. Possum, Possum Walk. Um, I lived right down there by where this happened, about 300 yards from this little place, that they lost their horse into a swampy uh, little ravine area through that way. And I know exactly where that's at. And they lost their horse, pulled their stuff off the horse, and then they actually come back later on <laughs> thinking, I need this horse. Uh, we need this horse. So they're going to dig it out. And they, they got the horse free. Um, there's just so many horrible things that happened to them, but they kept uh, trotting on. They did not quit. They kept going on. Uh, they worked their way all the way from, so they'll go all the way down from Potosi. They'll go down through uh, Kabul, Salem area, uh, all the way down into Ozark County. They will go to near Dora, Missouri on their itinerary. They stay in a cave there, and today we call it the Potato Cave. We'll talk a little bit about that in the future. They head on down past a little place called Dot or today we know it as a dot mill, dot Missouri. It's on the North Fork River. Uh, it's a great place where people go into canoe or pull their canoes out on the on the uh, North Fork River. It's the North Fork of the White River, I should say that. Um, even as a kid, um, I remember going with my dad to work in the winter time uh, when school was out and it was snow and ice on the roads. 
we didn't have school. My dad would still go to work and he was a carpenter, uh, during those days. And, uh, he would, <laughs> he would take me and I would take my fishing pole. And in the wintertime, I would go down there on the North Fork river and it is cold on the North Fork river, uh, in December and January through that area. And, uh, so they were down through there. They worked their way on down the North Fork river to a place called Udall, uh, down into, um, northern part of Arkansas. Uh, there's a place called uh, Bennett's Bayou. Uh, they stayed at some other people's house around there called the Wells. They worked their way back up to Ozark County across Lick Creek. They went to a place called Pontiac, Missouri, uh, headed down just a little bit to Oakland, Arkansas, up the White River, the main channel of the White River, all the way up into Taney County, of Missouri, where uh, we have Branson. They worked their way up into Christian County. They got right south of Springfield, Missouri, and then they headed back down the White River, floated down the White River, down again by Oakland, Arkansas. Then we have Cotter, then we have Calico Rock. Oh, they were at Norfolk also. Calico Rock uh, went down to Batesville, and then they started walking back out of the Ozarks, and they got back to Potosi later on in February. It's just a, it's just a, it's a horrible time to take a trip. But uh, they went ahead and took their trip. Now, after the trip of 1818, 1819, Schoolcraft actually published a book identifying the potential lead deposits of the state. And he just really focused on the, the mines there around Potosi. But later on, he published a really good detailed journal. Um, he added to the journal. And so he added some nice language of and adjectives of what the area looked like. And we'll get into that also. So let's go ahead and let's begin back into our journey of Schoolcraft. Now let's continue on with Thursday, November 5th, 1818. Potosi is the seat of justice for Washington County, Missouri, Missouri Territory, and it is situated 40 miles west of St. Genevieve and about 60 southwest of St. Louis, the capital. It occupies a delightful valley of small extent through which a stream of the purest water meanders dividing the village into two portions of nearly equal extent. This valley is bordered by hills of primitive limestone, rising in some places in rugged peaks, in others covered with trees and grouped with and interspersed with cultivated farms in such manner as to give the village a pleasing and picturesque appearance. It contains 70 buildings, exclusive of a courthouse, a jail, an academy, a post office, one sawmill, and two gristmills, and a number of temporary buildings necessary in the smelting of lead. In this vicinity is found a considerable tract of very fertile land. A lively interest is also manifested in the pursuit of agriculture, but the trade of Potosi is chiefly in lead, which, in a great degree, the medium of exchange, as furs and peltries formerly were in certain parts of the Atlantic states. Friday, November 6th, 1818. Having completed the necessary preparations, I left Potosi at 3 o'clock p.m., accompanied by Mr. Levi Pettibone, both being armed with guns and clothed and equipped in the manner of a hunter and we were leading a pack horse who carried our baggage consisting of skins to cover us at night, some provisions, an axe, a few cooking utensils, etc. On walking out of the village of Potosi on the southwest, 
we immediately commenced ascending a series of hills which are the seat of the principal mines, winding along among the pits, heaps of gravel, spars, and other rubbish constantly accumulating at the mines were scarcely ground enough that has been left undisturbed for the safe passage of the traveler, who is constantly kept in peril by unseen excavations and falling in pits. The surface of the mine hills is, in fact, completely perforated in all directions, although most of the pits have not been continued more than 20 or 30 feet below the surface, where rock has opposed a barrier to the further progress of the miner. On reaching the summit of these hills, we turn to survey the beautiful prospect behind us, the Valley of Potosi, with its village and stream, the cultivated fields on its borders, the calcareous hills crowned with oaks beyond, with distant furnaces smoking through the trees and widespread ruins at our feet. A deep blue sky hung above us. The atmosphere was clear and pure, with a gentle breeze from the southwest, which, passing through the dried leaves of the trees, scattered them over the valley that we had left. They murmured a pensive farewell. We turned to pursue our way with such feelings as many travelers have experienced on turning their backs on the comforts and endearments of life to encounter fatigue, hard fare, and danger. On traveling three miles from this spot, we arrived at a deserted Indian cabin on the banks of a small stream called Bates Creek, where we determined to encamp for the night. Saturday, November 7th, 1818. As we were unacquainted with the hunter's art of traveling in the woods, we shall necessarily encounter some difficulties from our want of experience which a hunter himself would escape. We find it necessary to gain knowledge of things of which we knew nothing before and in which we had not any experience, such as the art of hobbling a horse properly, with the safety to ourselves and without injury to him, and the best method of building a campfire how to cook a piece of venison, or boil a pot of coffee, etc. Such are now the objects which we will engross our daily attention to excel in and which becomes a point of ambitious exertion. Sunday, November 8, 1818 In traveling two miles this morning, we found ourselves on the banks of Fourchet-Courtois, a considerable stream of one of the principal tributaries of the Merrimack River. The Fourchet Courtois originates in the highlands near the head of the St. Francis River. Now, as we made our approach to a hunter's cabin, we halted to inquire respecting the Indian trace to the country of the Osages, which, we are informed, ran in the direction we were traveling and might be pursued for 60 or 70 miles with advantage. The owner of the cabin, not himself have arrived yet, but his wife very readily gave us every information respecting the direction of the trace, the streams we were to cross, the game we might expect to find our substance, and other particulars, evincing a perfect acquaintance with the subject, adding that it was dangerous traveling in that quarter on the account of the Osage, who never failed to rob or plunder those who fell in their way and often carried them in captivity to their villages 
on the Grand Osage River. She said her husband had contemplated on going out on a hunt into that quarter for several days, but was fearful of going alone lest he should fall into the party of those Indians. But she thought he would be willing to accompany us on a part of that way and advised us to await his return from the woods as he had only gone a short distance to kill some turkey. While we were awaiting his return, she continued to repeat several incidents of robberies and murders committed by the Osages, and the un unusual hardships that had been encountered in the woods by her husband and others. She told us, also, that our guns were not well adapted for our journey, that we should have rifles, and pointed out some other errors in our dress, equipments, and mode of traveling, while we stood in astonishment to hear a woman direct us in the manners of which had before thought the peculiar and exclusive providence of men. While thus engaged, the husband entered and readily agreed upon our proposal to accompany us toward White River, where he represented the game to exist in great abundance. In a few moments he was ready, putting three or four large cakes of cornbread in a sack and shouldering a rifle. He mounted his horse, and we were all set forward together, mutually pleased with the reciprocal benefits expected from traveling in company. As we passed onward, we passed this stream through a small village of Delaware Indians, who were all now out hunting except the old men, women, and children, and four miles below the spot where we had crossed the stream is situated a large village of Shawnees, and three miles above is another settlement of Delawares. Now on leaving the valley, we immediately entered a hilly barren tract covered with high grass, here and there clumps of oak trees, soil poor and covered with fragments of jaspery flint, hornstone, quartz, detached masses of carbonate of lime. Such indeed has been the character of the small stones underfoot from Potosi, but the ledges breaking out on the hills have uniformly been limestone, stratium upon stratium. Now we encamped after dark in a small valley near a stream, distance 11 miles. Monday, November 9th, 1818. The sleep of the hunter is not sound, neither is his vigilance to be eluded. The anxiety he has kept in, from the fear of the Indian on one hand, and the approach of wild animals on the other, produces constant wakefulness during the night. His horse and baggage also demand occasional notice during the darkness of night, and he lies down with his rifle in his arms to be prepared for emergencies. An instant of this vigilance occurred last night and prevented a loss which would, in our situation, would have been irreparable. Our pack horse, who, as usual, was turned loose to graze, accompanied by that of a hunter, strayed off from our camp and was not long gone when missed by Roberts, the hunter along with us, who he woke me, and we pursued and overtook them about three miles off and we brought them back to the camp before daylight. All this serves to increase our caution, and the farther we proceed, the more serious would be any loss we might sustain, either our horse, guns, locks, ammunition, or any article necessary to our safety or subsistence. During the night, 
we had several times been disturbed by the approach of elk and deer, and as soon as the day dawned, Roberts went out a short distance and killed a fine fat doe, which he brought in on his shoulders, and we made a breakfast for the first time on roasted deer's meat, with appetites sharpened by exercise, which, while it invigorates the body, as we experienced, increased the alimentary capacities. Tuesday, November 10th, 1818. The entry only says, folks, distance traveled 20 miles. Next time as we go into Ozark's history, we'll start on November the 11th, 1818 on a Wednesday, and we will see the adventures that take place at nighttime and what they hear, and it basically consists of wolves. Well, folks, we've spent a few moments discovering Henry Rose Schoolcraft and the few surprises, or rather I should say discoveries, on his Ozark expedition. And as we uh, have take a moment and look back on our own lives, we can see the areas that we might have lacked the wisdom in our own adventures in the past, and sometimes these episodes, they might look foolish to others. But as we look back, I believe we can glean elements out of our successes and our mistakes. It's these turning points in our lives that we could also share with our family, friends, children. We can share them with our grandchildren. These rugged jewels can actually be crowning stones to influence our current generation and those who come after us. Folks, I also believe we have the ability to possess a characteristic schoolcraft had also, and we can be successful in our own adventure. And what is that quality? He had an optimistic sense of adventure. Even though it might get him in some trouble, he was still very optimistic in his adventure. So if you ever feel discouraged or looking for an answer in a dismal situation, maybe it's time just to stop, raise yourself up, and listen to a little wisdom, and let our sense of adventure take flight. I am Vincent Anderson. Thanks for listening, and join me again next time for Ozark's History and Stories.